Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. What I love about Shopify is basically how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. I know we use Shopify here at Betches. And honestly, anyone with any kind of business could really benefit from Shopify. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash betches, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash betches now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash betches. On this bonus episode of Crown Jewels, Sammy Sage, Betches co-founder and host of Morning Announcements, takes us on a deep dive into the royal family's finances. She'll help us discover how much wealth the Windsors really have and if the coronation was planned on a shoestring budget. So keep listening to find out. Hello and welcome to Extra Extra. I am Betches co-founder and Morning Announcements host, Sammy Sage. And I am thrilled to be back here on your Betches Up feed. You all know how much I love a good deep dive. So we are going to have these extra, extra episodes on the Betches Up feed when we have something that calls for a bigger investigation, like today. It has been just a week since King Charles III made it official. The UK held its first coronation since the 1950s. And I will just say, it looks a smidge more ridiculous in color. More ridiculous than the outfits, though, was how the royal family and the commentators were strangely set on presenting the coronation to the public as something that was somehow sustainable or slimmed down. I think the most important thing that we're hearing is that it's going to be a scaled-back coronation, something that will reflect the king's concern, that, the, uh, that it should reflect the modern place of the monarchy in modern Britain. Were we watching the same coronation? The royals are out here trotting out solid gold carriages from centuries ago and lamenting that it doesn't have air conditioning. Meanwhile, the rest of the UK has been in the throes of a cost-of-living crisis since 2021. How bad is it? Inflation hit 11% in October 2022, and as of March 2023, two months ago, it was still hovering around 10%. Yes, this is largely due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but that is besides the point. The point is how people are actually living, relative to the royal family who they collectively support. National statistics in the UK show that post-household income last year declined by 4.3%, which is the largest decrease since they started keeping comparable records. And when it came to household disposable income in the UK, they estimate that it will fall by 3.2% in 2023, after a 3.1% decline last year. So yeah, there were definitely some people who weren't thrilled to hear that Camilla, wearing a slightly less controversial diamond, could pass for scaled back. 
especially when the cost of the coronation is fully borne by taxpayers. Speaking of that cost, the bill is estimated to have been around 100 million pounds, or $125 million. And despite the whole scaled-back, low-key PR angle, that is actually double the cost of Charles's mother's Queen Elizabeth's, which was around the equivalent of $70 million in today's dollars. So in light of this, what the Brits might call an unpleasantry, The Guardian conducted a massive investigation into the royal family's wealth, how they got it, how they keep getting it, and what is the burden to the British taxpayer? Should the taxpayer be paying it, or should the royals contribute a little for themselves? Ultimately, the question they sought to answer is whether the royals should have paid for their own damn coronation. In light of how much wealth they already have and will continue to get in perpetuity, much of it actually a direct result of their royal status— and a lot more than had ever been publicly known, thanks to how hard the family has fought to keep all information about their finances out of public reach. Ultimately, what the investigation bears out is how futile the arrangement is between the royals and the British people, and how they have been able to keep it that way, largely thanks to their undue influence on the government and their flouting of laws meant to separate public and private wealth. all of the reporting from this episode comes from The Guardian's recent series, The Cost of the Crown, which they released leading up to the coronation. In the series, they explored a variety of topics, including the political circumstances that landed the family in such a plum financial situation, the monarchy's ties to transatlantic slavery, what the family owns and how they profited from it, and how the crown blocks nearly all information about this from the public. So here is our headline number. Two billion. The Guardian estimated King Charles's wealth at a bit under that, technically 1.18 billion pounds. But you know, a good day at the market could quickly become two. The monarch gets their wealth from three places. The first is the sovereign grant. That is what the British taxpayers are directly paying each year for working royals to operate. Think of this like their salaries for being working royals, the job that they can never get fired from. The second is income from the duchies of Cornwall and Lancaster. Think of these like, in addition to their day jobs, they're also landlords and collect massive profits from their real estate holdings in the form of rent and other payments. We will get more into the duchies in a minute, but they are essentially just portfolios that contain huge swaths of land in the UK. And Charles and the late queen's income from the duchies grew 16-fold during Elizabeth's reign. And the third big category is something that includes a lot of random big-ticket items. So I'll just refer to this as very expensive prezies. Think of these like celebrity gift bags, except with items of priceless significance, many of which has been plundered. Historically, the royals have received a ton of gifts in the course of their public roles, and not just like an upscale candle. We're talking like racehorses, Monet's and a lot of shit that they stole from the countries that they colonized. These things are technically held by the monarch on behalf of the crown and the British people in an arrangement that is called, quote, in right of the crown. In reality, though, there's no difference between the public and private usage because they keep their gifts for personal usage in many cases. And like, who is going to stop them? Who's going to say, no, Camilla, you can't wear those stolen Indian rubies? Definitely not the British public, certainly not the government, who, by the way, 
would be required to report even small gifts that they receive in their public and sometimes private roles, while the royals are not really technically held accountable for those types of rules, even though they do exist. Also, many of these objects that are held, quote, in right of the crown are not actually accessible to the public. No one besides the royal family is going to be caught riding Queen Elizabeth's hand-me-down horses. But I will get more into all of those details later. Let's first talk about how circumstances have allowed the Windsor family to acquire almost £2 billion worth of wealth. While they are simultaneously living off the taxpayers as non-elected heads of state, and not just heads of the UK, but of former British colonies who were grandfathered into the Commonwealth, but who have not yet separated themselves from it. Not to mention that the monarchy is able to use the wealth that they've earned from their positions to manage public matters. For example, the Queen paid for Prince Andrew's settlement to Jeffrey Epstein victim Virginia Dufre, and for Charles' divorce settlement with Princess Diana out of her own personal funds. It was finally the Queen who put her royal foot down, in effect ordering her son and daughter-in-law to end it all. End the public bickering, the humiliation, the gossip, and the guessing. A divorce settlement worth £17 million. Prince Andrew has reached a financial settlement with Virginia Dufre, and this is what court documents have just revealed. This is a report that we're just hearing... One of the biggest questions I kept coming back to while reading through this Guardian research is why is it this way? How did this arrangement come to pass that the taxpayers are both paying for the royals and they're able to earn so much of their own income, essentially reaping all these very, very lucrative perks that just come with being a working royal? It turns out the answer is pretty much it's this way because it has always been this way. This arrangement started in 1760, when the king at the time, George III, gave up personal ownership of something called the Crown Estate. That was nearly all of the land and holdings owned by the monarch. He did this in exchange for the monarch to receive income yearly in perpetuity under an arrangement known as the Civil List, and they received that income in exchange for simply being the working royals, which includes things like attending ribbon cuttings, garden parties flower pickings, and other charitable events. As part of their report, The Guardian actually broke down how much each working royal has received and how many engagements they've done in order to receive that money. I'll just say that Kate and Will's average number of events is not as high as you'd think. Anyway, the civil list was an arrangement where Parliament would vote yearly on a budget for all of the working royals. And that arrangement was in effect until as recently as 2011. However, in 2011, Prime Minister David Cameron's government agreed to replace this arrangement with something called the Sovereign Grant. That is the arrangement under which the royals are paid now. And this means that rather than Parliament voting on what each royal would be paid every year, this means that now the entire royal family gets a portion of the profits from the Crown Estate every year, and Parliament votes on what that percentage is. This percentage started somewhere around 15%. But it has been increased to 25% recently to pay for extensive renovations to Buckingham Palace, where no one even lives because they have like two other palaces basically down the block. Up until 2022, the Sovereign Grant was a yearly payment of about £86 million, and that is used to fund pretty much most of what the royals do. Things like royal trips abroad and maintenance of properties. But here's the real catch with the Sovereign Grant. There is a clause included called the Golden Ratchet, I shit you not, 
That clause essentially guarantees that even though the sovereign grant is to be based on the profits earned by the crown estate, the amount that the monarch receives cannot ever go down and only go up, no matter the state of the economy or the profits of the crown estate. So last year, even as the cost of living crisis was going on, the Queen received a £30 million raise from taxpayer funds thanks to the sovereign grant. Very much a heads-I-win, tails-I-also-win situation. It may not surprise you to learn that the monarch doesn't pay an inheritance tax. Queen Elizabeth had an arrangement where she was voluntarily paying income tax on her profits from the Duchy of Lancaster. But when asked if that would continue under Charles's reign, the palace told the Guardian that it was considered a private financial matter. A spokesperson for Buckingham Palace said, quote, Revenues raised by the Crown are a matter for the Crown Estate and HM Treasury, whatever that means. But even when they were asked how much taxpayer funds were spent on Queen Elizabeth's funeral and King Charles' coronation, which were by all means public events, both the government and the palace have said that figures will be released, quote, in due course. Again, whatever that means. Inheritance, though, is the entire name of the game for this family in so many ways. And that lack of requirement to pay an inheritance tax creates a strong incentive for the monarch to pass their assets on, especially land, to the next heir. Nowhere is that more clear than in the arrangement with the duchies. Let's define those for us Americans. Duchies are large private estate portfolios of land, property, and assets that are held in trusts. They pay out earnings to their owner, in this case, the monarch and the heir to the throne. The holdings include things like rural farms, urban developments, commercial properties, and businesses, to which the duchy plays landlord. So think of it kind of like a corporation. There are two royal duchies that have special legal rights that are not afforded to similar estates or trusts, though, and those are the ones that belong to the monarchy. The first is the Duchy of Lancaster. That includes property across all of England and Wales, much of it north of London, and it has historically been owned by the monarch, which means that they are the one personally earning the profits from it as someone would earn money from a trust. As of March 2022, that estate was valued at just over 650 million pounds, and the Queen's net income in 2022 was about 24 million pounds. Then there's the Duchy of Cornwall, located mostly in the southwest of England, and that has historically belonged to the Prince of Wales. Prince of Wales is the title that goes to the second in line to the throne, and they're also known as the Duke of Cornwall, but really it's just William. So for example, when Elizabeth was alive, she was the owner of the Duchy of Lancaster and Charles was the owner of the Duchy of Cornwall. Now Charles has control of Lancaster and William has control of Cornwall. Since the beginning of Queen Elizabeth's reign, The Guardian has estimated that she and Charles collectively earned about £1.2 billion from their duchy income. The wonderful thing about the Duchy of Cornwall has always been that family association going back all these generations. It's nearly 700 years old. I think I shall die before that moment comes, probably. Now, income from the duchies is one of the most hotly contested questions around royal income. Of course, the palace insists that it's considered private income, but it's also the subject of a centuries-old debate over whether duchy profits should be considered public. Because at the same time, the government continues to foot the bill for many royal costs on top of their annual sovereign grant payment. And maybe if they were to give up some of their duchy income, that could cover some of those government funds. 
For example, the royals regularly avail themselves of government funds from the Ministry of Defense, the Home Office, the Department for Culture, Media, and Sport, and the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, though, of course, they're not giving exact figures. I take this opportunity to continue the tradition of surrendering the hereditary revenues, including the Crown Estate, to my government for the benefit of all. In his name and after his example, I come not to be served, but to serve. Now let's talk about our third big category from which the Windsors have derived their wealth, the very expensive prezies category, which is a catch-all including a lot of things. This is a smaller percentage of their wealth, and it is probably the hardest to value, but in my opinion, also the most interesting. It's kind of a catch-all for big-ticket items that the royals come into in various ways, like gift horses, jewelry, artwork, cars, even stamps. For real, they have a stamp collection that's estimated to be worth 100 million pounds, just in stamps alone. Now, before I get into the juicy details of the rest of it, and where some of these rare and expensive items actually came from, it's important to put a few things in context. A huge issue here is the blurring of public and private ownership, as well as the lack of transparency around not only the wealth of the family, but where it comes from, and the active work by the palace to hide information from the public. Everyone knows the royal MO has been to never complain and never explain. They do this with all types of things, but one of the oddest is the way that they attempt to cloud the activities of what the working royals actually do, and how much they're receiving for their contributions. Take this situation. There is a 91-year-old guy in Northern England who has spent decades cataloging the daily activities of the royal family based on the court circular that's published every day in the Telegraph. That is the official record that lists the activities of the monarch and the other working royals. Now, the palace is not accountable to freedom of information requests, and they're not about to tell you where the royals have been every day for the past several decades. But even when it came to this independent guy who essentially tracked the royals and sent it to the press every year just for fun because he was a fan, not a hater, according to The Guardian, the palace had at one point asked him to stop releasing his data. Ultimately, they let him get on with it when he refused to stop, but the point is that they clearly don't want their business out there, and they will take both legal and other courses of action to stop it. On some level, this secrecy is about control and power, but it's often cloaked in the excuse that it would be, quote, embarrassing or improper to chew over the finances or doings of the monarch. This is never more clear than when it comes to the specifics of family inheritances. Forget about seeing any of the Windsor wills including even obscure distant family members, which are censored by judicial decree. This didn't actually start until 1911, when every royal will was public with the exception of the actual monarch. However, the judiciary began censoring the wills of all of the royals at the request of Queen Mary after her brother died and she wanted to conceal that he had left jewels to a woman that he was having an affair with. Of course, it's always that. And ever since, members of the royal family have been able to request that their wills be hidden. This is despite the fact that official papers reveal that senior government officials have seriously doubted the legal basis for this. But it still continues. And it has actually started to go even further recently. After the death of Prince Philip, a judge ruled that not only should Philip's will be sealed, but that the wills of all senior royals should be secret for a minimum of 90 years. That is the real stealth wealth. So when it comes to hiding investments owned by the royal family, 
you can see why it's very easy for them to keep it shady. And they do it on purpose. Archives reveal that they have for decades been using government-backed shell companies that were created specifically to conceal royal investments from public scrutiny. Generally, throughout Elizabeth's rule, the move had been towards more secrecy. Going back to the 1970s, a shell company known as the Bank of England Nominees was set up for this specific purpose of royals hiding their investments. This happened because the government proposed a bill in 1973 that would make company shareholdings more transparent and would have enabled public scrutiny of the Queen's finances. At the time, the palace lobbied the government to find a way out of it, of course. And then the government quietly introduced a clause in the legislation that allowed them to exempt certain companies from the requirement to declare the identities of specific categories of shareholders, including monarchs and heads of states, but also foreign investors. The Bank of England nominees was set up in 1977, and it is known to have been used by at least five members of the family, including the Queen, Prince Philip, Princess Margaret, nothing we can do about any of them, but also Prince Charles and Prince Andrew. No Princess Anne, though. Classic. In Andrew's case, we got to talk about this guy. This was problematic on another level, because he used this shell company and did not disclose it while he was working in a government role as a special trade envoy for the UK at the time. This role would have had access to commercially sensitive information, and under transparency rules, he would have, in theory, been required to publicly disclose to Parliament any significant shares he owns. The Bank of England nominee shell company operated like this for almost 40 years, until it was wound up in 2011 when government officials said that it would be, quote, difficult to defend because it was impossible to tell which shares of the company were held on behalf of the royals as opposed to foreign government officials or other heads of state, which could probably become a national security issue. However, this was not rolled up before the prime Epstein years, between 2006 and 2010, when Prince Andrew was working as a trade envoy and was tasked with promoting UK interests abroad. This was obviously a good in for him with Jeffrey Epstein and all the people that he was hanging out with. Andrew ultimately stepped down in 2011 after his links to Epstein and other shady businessmen were discovered, though. I do have to give it slightly to King Charles and Prince Philip, who stopped using the company in 2007 and 2008, respectively. But it's not as if they were wanting for any money. All of these opportunities for hiding family funds enabled the collection of these countless, very expensive prezies that I mentioned earlier. Let's start with their personally owned palaces, which are different from the palaces that are held by the crown, with a capital C, as an institution. Is there really a difference? I don't know. But regardless, it is established that the Windsors have personal ownership over some palaces and not others. For example, the crown owns Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle. But the monarch personally is the heir to Balmoral in Scotland, which is valued up to 80 million pounds, and to Sandringham Estate, which the Guardian valued at somewhere between 250 and 390 million pounds. These estates aren't just one big castle and some stables. They are basically like giant rural towns. The Windsors own the homes of everyone who lives on those estates, effectively making them landlords that can reap profits from them. But at the same time, they are simultaneously taking government assistance for the maintenance of these properties. Government data shows that Balmoral has received over £1 million in subsidies over the past two decades for restoration. And at Sandringham, the Guardian estimates that Charles owns about £75 million worth of farmland and residential homes, as well as at least 37 commercial properties, 
But at the same time, according to government data, the estate has taken over 15.4 million pounds in just over two decades in the form of subsidies. Another example of this is a smaller and perhaps more problematic real estate arrangement. Charles also inherited a house in Edinburgh that was gifted to the queen when she was young, during the course of her public role as sovereign. That house had been managed by the UK government for 40 years as a grace and favor property, which they give to people who need somewhere to live and are important to the government. But now that property is being rented out by Charles for income. And it's just like, why? Don't you have enough income? And sure, even if you want more income, then why don't you pay for your own big crown party? We see it is the king and the queen consort in the Diamond Jubilee state coach making their way now. Just gorgeous. That, nothing happens without symbolism here. It's, That's right. It's always better if it's carved in gold. Uh, this one, electric windows. It's only 11 years old. TV, Come on. Yeah. Right? As I say, if, the, if there's a slimming down to the monarchy, uh, then... <laughs> It's all a relative term. This is what uh, what the slimmer monarchy uh, looks like. It's a slightly less gilded coach. But we also are seeing the tradition as they are passing behind us here. They've got the sovereign's escort of the household cavalry. Now that we're getting into the big gifts, this would be a good time for clarification on the rules for state versus personal gifts. The rules for gifts received by the royal family were drawn up in 1995 in response to some shady gifting, of course and then updated in 2003. And they generally divide gifts into two categories, official and personal. Any gift received by the family in connection with their official duties cannot be sold or traded, though they can be worn or used or placed on public display. Items that are gifted to the monarch automatically become property of the royal collection, which is an institution set up specifically to manage the country's royal heritage, or it can go into storage if they don't like it that much. Personal gifts, on the other hand, are from people who the family knows personally that are not given in connection with their working royal duties. They can be of any amount, and they belong to the person who was gifted them. However, if a royal is given a gift by someone with whom they have a formal relationship, those gifts can be considered personal as long as they are worth less than 150 pounds. But anything worth more than that is considered an official gift, even if it was technically a personal gift. As I'm sure you can imagine, this policy is hard to enforce, but with the king and queen of it all. So that explains how the queen was gifted 34 racehorses from the emir of Dubai and five from the Aga Khan, one of whom actually won the gold cup at Royal Ascot in 2013, which many have noted as the happiest they've ever seen the queen look. Now, everybody knows the late queen loved horses and horse racing. One of the times she showed the most emotion in public was when her horse Estimate won the Gold Cup at Royal Ascot. Estimate might just strike the front. Simonon on the near side. Top trip finishing off well. Estimate has a neck in hand. Oh, Simonon, a royal win in the Gold Cup. Estimate has done it. And the Queen is watching her Philly Estimate win the race for which she is meant to present the trophy. Her Majesty the Queen only presents two trophies during Royal Ascot, and look at the delight there, the sheer joy. Greg has found something interesting about that horse. Uh, Estimate was a uh, a birthday present for the Queen's 80th birthday from, from the Aga Khan, who is a significant racing and breeding figure, and it turned out to be an inspired present because... A few years later, she went on to win the Gold Cup at Ascot. Quite possibly the the biggest moment of her racing, her time on the turf, which 
stretch of 70 years in the end. It's worth noting that the Queen reportedly had a long history of accepting, and at times demanding, horses as gifts. The Times of London reported two years ago that she accepted two horses as gifts from the Sheikh Mohammed, even after his wife fled to London because he abducted two of his own daughters. Then just two months ago, German magazine Der Spiegel reported on state papers that documented how the Queen asked for two horses as a gift while on a visit to West Germany in 1978. Their government approved the gift despite it being the most expensive one for a visiting head of state since the end of World War II. This is a pattern, people. Regardless, Charles hasn't wasted any time since his mother passed to profit off of her stables. He sold some of her horses from his mother's 27 million pound horse coterie. And since her death, he has reportedly earned 2.3 million from selling horses at auction. Still has nothing on the stamp collection, though. Nor is it touching the value of Charles's fleet of luxury cars, which is estimated to be worth 6.3 million pounds and probably move faster than the horses. Next, we have to talk about art. That is its own major conversation. When it comes to high-value art, the palace is obviously not going to provide any sort of list or catalog of what they consider to be held in right of the crown and what is part of their individual personal collections. In theory, if art were given as a public gift, those works should be held in right of the crown. But in reality, there is no clear line or accounting of what belongs to whom, who has access to what, and what is being passed down in those hidden wills. The Guardian was able to identify almost 400 artworks that are privately held by the family, and therefore considered part of their personal wealth, including works by Monet, Chagall, and Dali. But since there is no official accounting of these works, reporters relied on decades' worth of video footage, interviews, and photographs of the royals in their homes. For example, they found a quote from Prince Philip in 1960, where he says that Marc Chagall gave him a Bible that he had illustrated in watercolors and ink. Experts say that could be worth up to 60,000 pounds, without even accounting for the premium that it was previously owned by Prince Philip. Much of the family's collection is thought to have derived from Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth's mother, who was an avid art collector. She reportedly bought dozens of valuable works that are in the collection now between the 1930s and 1950s. Wasn't that what everyone was doing in those years? But while it is impossible to know the real value of this collection, The Guardian was able to compile a list of 392 works that they know are privately owned by the Windsors. However, the location of many of them remains a mystery. They conservatively ballparked the value at around $24 for the 60 most valuable artworks out of their collection. However, others have speculated on the value of those personal collections at much higher numbers. In 2020, historian David McClure estimated the Queen Mother's collection alone at 30 million pounds, and Prince Philip's at 2 million pounds. Though in 2011, the art expert Robin Simon valued the Queen's total collection at 150 million pounds. So the world may never know. But rest assured, they are very, very wealthy. Being royal means living in a world of opulence and luxury. It's a lifestyle most of us can only dream about. And it's the crown jewels which are the ultimate symbols of wealth, status, and power. The Queen's Jewel Vault is huge. Um, We still get pieces coming out today that we didn't know existed. From diamond-encrusted tiaras, to exquisite brooches, to those wonderful necklaces, the full royal suite. 
our last big section, we have to talk about the jewels of the royal family, which The Guardian referred to in one headline as, quote, colonial loot. The issue has come up in light of the coronation regarding the question of whether Camilla should wear the Koh-i-Noor diamond. This is sort of the apex predator of colonial loot. It is one of the largest cut diamonds in the world, weighing in at 105.6 carats. The diamond is currently held by the crown in the Tower of London, and there are several conflicting stories as to its origin. But suffice it to say that it was not on English soil. India, Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and even the Taliban have all laid claim to the Koh-i-Noor, while the British government maintains that it was obtained legally under the terms of a treaty. Anyway, Camilla ended up wearing a jewel called the Cullinan III, which is known as one of the lesser stars of Africa, that is a group of diamonds, which were sometimes also referred to as Granny's Chips. They found their way to the Windsors after being given as private gifts to Queen Mary from the South African government, then passed on to her daughter Elizabeth. Queen Mary really liked the finer things. A sizable portion of the Queen's jewels were acquired by Queen Mary, many of which she had gotten in the 1920s from the deposed Romanov family. This includes what was reportedly the Queen's favorite tiara, known as the Vladimir tiara, estimated to be worth 30 million pounds alone. But some of the big jewels were not from the deposed monarchs of Europe. They were from the global south. One is the Timor ruby. We found this amazing footage of Queen Elizabeth II in 1969. She sat at a table, carefully handling this incredible necklace of huge red jewels. She seems quite taken with it. This fascinating necklace, the timer ruby one. Do wish I could uh, find... I think really one ought to get a dress design so that one Especially could, could wear it, yes. This is, it, it, the history, of course, is, is very fascinating that it belonged to so many of the kings of... Persia and Mughal emperors. It's come all the way down now until uh, Queen Victoria was was sent it from India. It's all fascinating. Marvelous. So it'd be nice if one could go on wearing it, I think. When it comes to gems without household names, The Guardian identified 90 pieces of jewelry as part of Queen Elizabeth's personal collection that they've estimated to be valued at approximately 530 million pounds. Though because wills are secret, it is not possible to know who was given what when she passed. Now, we in 2023 are pretty lucky that Queen Mary was so into her jewels, because The Guardian discovered a 45-page file in the archives of the government department that was responsible for Britain's rule over India that details an investigation commissioned by Queen Mary into the origins of her jewels. I don't think she did this for, like, moral reasons. I think she was just kind of curious. The report details how jewels and other valuables were extracted from India as trophies of conquest and later gifted to Queen Victoria, who was Queen Mary's mother, and she passed them on to Queen Elizabeth. And no, these were not accidental jewelry acquisitions. They were well-planned. Here is a clip from the Guardian's podcast episode on how much of the royal's wealth is directly tied to imperialism. Amongst all of these knickknacks is this, is this emerald girdle, which has been selected as one of his favorite pieces. And, it is, and it's a really, you know, amazing object. Uh, I've, I also found this, this diary in the British Library by a woman called Fanny Eden who toured the Punjab about 10 years before it was conquered by the East India Company. And she literally says in the diary, we've seen a parade of horses wearing emeralds. They're absolutely incredible. And then she says, in terms, if ever we are to plunder this kingdom, I shall go straight to the stables, which is just so, it just comes out of nowhere. 
Um, and of course, like 10 years later, that's exactly what happens. And lo and behold, this emerald girdle ends up in London and is now part of England's national heritage. It, it's, it, it, it's been on this very strange journey and, and is now being exhibited alongside you know, Prince Charles's watercolours of Balmoral. More broadly, while King Charles and Prince William have at the very least expressed, quote, profound sorrow over the atrocities of slavery, it turns out that the monarchy is not so innocent in these atrocities. Is anyone surprised that's how they became the monarchy? According to historians, over a period of 270 years, 12 British monarchs sponsored, supported, or profited from British involvement in the transatlantic slave trade. This began under Queen Anne, the one from The Favourite. I've sent for some lobsters. I thought we could race them and then eat them. Who dramatically expanded the country's slave trading activities in the 1710s. And those didn't end until slavery was abolished in the UK in 1833. Though the king at that time, William IV, personally opposed abolition. But I mean, yeah, they are the monarchy of the British Empire. They were kind of the -the state-of-the-art colonizers of their time. So it makes sense that they would have built substantial wealth and gotten quite a few heirlooms from these misadventures. The least of which would be Kensington Palace itself, where many royals live to this day. And that is because it was built during the time when the slave trade was booming in the UK, largely on the profits from it. Now, as an American, I have no skin in the monarchy game, and absolutely no right to have any skin in the monarchy game. I am just coming at this as an observer, given the cultural influence of the monarchy and how many conversations around the royals dominate, even over here. And while we don't have our own monarch, there are legitimate ways that these issues of transparency, democratic control, wealth hoarding, and mostly the long-standing inequality wrought by slavery. These issues all map onto similar problems here in America. I am not a royalist or not. But I am more than happy to watch the spectacle and make observations and, of course, pull back the curtain on some of that glamour. If you want to learn more, links to all my references and all of the Guardian reporting are in the episode notes, and you can read more about all of this in the Guardian's Cost of the Crown series. I hope you enjoyed this episode at least as much as Megan enjoyed staying home last weekend. In the meantime, I have been thrilled to be back on the Betches Up feed. Please leave me a review and a rating and let me know what you think of the show. And as always, until next time, I'm Sammy Sage, and now you know what the fuck is really going on with the royal family's finances. Betches.